Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm talking to Peter Hennen. Peter's a well-regarded litigator here in Toronto, but he's also a stand-up comedian. We talk about the politics and psychology of stand-up. We talk about the psychology of his stand-up in particular. We talk about what lawyers can learn from stand-up and improv. And we talk about uh, the skin baby joke. You'll just have to listen to find out. This is his story. All right, Peter Hennon, welcome. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. How you been? I've uh, I've been good. I've been good. How are you? I- I'm good. You know, I'm excited to be having this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to it. So why don't we start? You're a stand-up. Tell me about that. Well, I, uh, for, I, I, these days I think of myself as a lawyer first because it seems to be what I've done uh, the That's most. How you pay the bills? <laughs> it's just it's just a side gig to pay the bills. Um, I started so I I was an actor, professional actor. Well, actually, let me go back even further. I went to U of T, so I I, I went to this this very prestigious university, and I got a drama degree, which kind of watered down the prestige that I could carry with me with my uh, U of T degree. But I, um, I did four years, uh, got a drama specialist, which is actually what it says on my, um, on my uh, diploma. And so after that, I became, I was a professional actor for about six years. And uh, in that time, about three years into it, I really started focusing on comedy. And then I eventually started doing stand up. Um, and that was kind of what I did right up until I started law school and then I tried to figure out how to be a lawyer for a while and then eventually I started kind of coming back to the comedy. So that's the kind of arc from kind of the beginning to some time later in the beginning. Nice. And so, I mean, so comedy, let me put this a different way, stand-up seems to be an art form that attracts a particular type of personality. And so I, I suspect only certain people can be good stand-ups and I suspect frankly only certain people would be willing to even try to be a stand-up is what sort of parts of your personality are gonna lend themselves to stand-up or, or what what about stand-up was attractive to you so I think the, the sweet answer is that I've loved comedy since I was a child and that is true I keep I keep pulling out whenever I can I've got some some kind of young kids, like my kids are around and they've got friends. I keep trying to pull out the uh, make them laugh uh, scene from um, from uh, Singing in the Rain with Donald O'Connor, because I always just thought that's it, be a performer. And that was this kind of ideal that I had as a little kid. So that is 100% true that I was probably about six or seven. And I was saying that I was going to be a comic, um, you know, and eventually give that up and, and go to law. Um, I didn't say that as the six, but um, I think the part, so that that's the kind of sweet version, but, you know, there is, I, I think you're right that there is a personality, or at least there's a big overlap on the Venn diagram of personalities who are attracted to stand up. And I've always believed that there's a real, like, if we're really talking about stand up as opposed to just any other form of comedy or comedic writing, there is an outsider view. Um, it's always the outside looking in. And so I feel like the it's not the contrarian part of me but it's always been the part of me that kind of views situations from perhaps a different perspective than other people in the room that was kind of what i think drove me to it is this kind of 
perspective that I, I guess I was bringing to conversations that started to feel like, okay, this is actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm moving some, some people in the room um, in terms of how I am seeing things versus how they see things. Were you the funny one in the family? Do you come from a funny family? Or, or you know, would, would if, if I was going to go back and talk to somebody who knew you when you were 12, would they be like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense that he was a stand-up? I was, I, I think I was um, a funny kid in my early years. I would say that the family was gregarious, like we were a loud family. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, it's, uh, you had a bunch of Middle Eastern people, you know, anywhere we would go, you would hear us. But, and there were certainly, I would say that there were people in the family that were very boisterous. So there, there was a family that really liked to laugh. And that was certainly, I think, the, the earlier parts of my life, because that was the period of my time uh, of my life where there were more family members just around generally and larger family events. And so, you know, there was just always a lot of humor and there would be those those nights that would end with, you know, one of it would have been one of my great uncles sitting in, in a chair just telling joke after joke after joke and, and and that so that kind of thing would happen and it was something certainly that i guess i saw growing up and and, and but you know when you say is your funny is your family funny and well i don't know if they're funny but i i guess looking back maybe maybe they were and were you like the funny one in your group of friends or would becoming a stand-up have sort of been a bit of a surprise for people that knew you when you were a teenager so <laughs> it's a funny so how do I explain this? I was, I would say that uh, elementary school and high school were probably a tough period, if I'm being honest. They were not, it was not an easy period for reasons that I can't quite explain. I just did not, I think, click with the social group when I was quite young. Um, and that group kind of followed along to high school. And then when I got to high school, so the truth of the matter is, when I got to high school, I would say by grade 11, I had kind of found that that there was no clique or group of people that I could really connect with. And that was when I said, what the hell, let's try theater. And <laughs> theater really, it actually quite seriously turned things around. And I went from being kind of persona non grata to becoming, I think, a fairly popular person. I graduated high school as the valedictorian. So it kind of, it was for me a real ugly duckling uh, story and and we did a lot of comedy uh, at the high school so you know the 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 shows kind of gave me an opportunity to do that and I think that started to embolden me to really kind of lean into it and and make that um, uh, you know a serious part of of my voice and and kind of how I how I reached out and kind of communicated with the world I guess hmm. and so so let me sort of open with a traditional Mark Marin question. So like, who are your guys? Who, who are you sort of inspired by? So, <laughs> so can, can we, can you maybe rephrase that as who are your guys who have not been canceled? Uh, we can do or, that. Or, yeah, or some seriously bad behavior. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's so a hard. Andrew Dice Clay was a big influence. That's right. what you're saying. Well, in fact, Andrew Dice Clay is probably one of the least problematic people uh, that were performing a lot when I was young. Um, so, it's it's a tough one because like the truth of the matter is when I was growing up, Bill Cosby was a hundred percent considered the best stand-up comic alive. Like every comic that said I want to be, you know, I want to do stuff was was looking to him. Unfortunately, for obvious reasons, he is off everybody's list right now. Although I know Jerry Seinfeld 
has been quite insistent that the jokes were good. And, you know, if the jokes were good, you can't say the jokes weren't good. But I had a wide range um, of people. So I would also say, I'd like to say Richard Pryor, but I think as I got older, it became people like Chris Rock. Dave Chappelle currently is my kind of, he's he's the, the top uh, of the heap. Um, but Steve Martin, Robin Williams, to a lesser degree, I think he was just more of that manic performance energy that he brought. George Carlin was uh, just an incredibly, I think, incredibly influential person. Again, unfortunate name, Woody Allen. I think he, he has, I think, about two hours of stand-up that were recorded and then he quit. Um, and it's, they're, they're fairly, in terms of the comedic writing, it's fairly perfect. Again, unfortunately, he's he's not really um, someone I like putting on my list, although I guess I've just <laughs> said all this on a podcast. We'll, we'll fix it in post. There you go, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there, I mean, I, I, I think I would, be remiss to not add Joan Rivers. I think Joan Rivers was probably one of the comics who impressed me the most. And that was maybe more her life as a performer and what she did on stage. And the fact that she, all the way through to just before she died, she was able to offend large swaths of people. So she didn't kind of age out of comedy, rather, um, you know, she just kept being as brash as she was all along. Right. That's a nice segue into the next question, which was, to what extent do you think that good comedy sort of has that transgressive element, that it has that offensive sort of component to it, as opposed to, you know, other strands of stand-up where it's, you know, maybe like a Rodney Dangerfield or something where like you're just trying to get somebody to laugh, right? As opposed to really contending with sort of social mores and, and, and topics that are, that are contemporary for the audience. I think I think a lot of it. Um, I think a lot of the great comics will have a transgressive component to what they're doing. And I think again, you have to be uh, careful when you're talking about transgression. If you're talking about like Sam Kinison, who's you know screaming uh, profanity into the microphone, there there's there's a background to how he you know developed that act. So it's transgressive in the sense that it it shocks the audience. But you know it isn't. I think where you put somebody like Dave Chappelle, who actually I think is quite transgressive, but his comedy often has a very, very specific point. And, and, and I think, you know, I know he recently won the Mark Twain Award. I think the reason is that he articulates over the course of his, his whatever one hour set or however long he tends to articulate these kind of broader, almost essays, uh, I would say about a particular issue and I know he he covered cancel culture in, in one of the uh, the Netflix specials that he did that kind of heralded the the return of him but you know you look at a George Carlin um, who's doing a lot of I mean he's doing a lot of stuff that by today's standards is quite tame but he was performing in the 50s and the 60s and you know when he said what is it you're I can't remember how many words you can't say on TV I think it was eight um, yeah seven or eight seven or eight like that's pretty transgressive at the time so and, and again, he's a very articulate kind of like he was, a, he, was a, he was very much a wordsmith, but still transgressive. So yes, but not shock for shock's sake. I think it, it, the, the, the great standups are very much satirists who are communicating something about, you know, culture or society. Right. Does standup have like a particular political orientation in the sense that like the only right wing, I'm putting, uh, putting that in quotes, the only right wing standup I can think of is like maybe Dennis Miller. Like, I, it, And I think most standups are at least kind of 
maybe with uh, being expressly political, kind of like vaguely left wing. Is that sort of baked into the art form or is that part of that? Is that sort of a, a downstream consequence of that transgression concept or how does that, how do you see that playing out? I, I think actually, to be fair, I think that a lot of the most well-known comics tend to have a kind of liberal leaning perspective, but there are huge number of comics who are very popular in different communities who I would say tend to skew, if not middle of the road, maybe the other end of the spectrum. And I think to discount them is to is to kind of assume that the only performers are the ones that we like. And, you know, I think of, and I, I can't profess to know a lot about these, these various acts, but, you know, you've got your Larry the Cable guy and you've got, I remember um, when I used to perform Yuck Yucks, they had their kind of um, comedy night for black comics. And, you know, you start to look at these different subgroups and I, Russell Peters came out of that. Uh, he, you know, that was one of the places that he would he would go and just kill every night. And so, you know, when you start looking at these these, these different kind of subgroups and, and American comics, you know, from different parts of the States, you start to hear a lot of these very different perspectives. Um, Bert, Bert Crusher sure. is, He's the guy who comes the out. The National Lampoon guy. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's like a guy again who I, I don't know that I would call him left or right. I think that right. he's kind of somewhere bouncing around in there. So yeah, I, but there is something inherently... So let me say this, that I think with most comics, and this is also most comics that I met over the course of my time doing it, and, and I've kept in touch with you know, uh, performers kind of throughout my life, regardless of their political orientation, some people might be a little bit more left, a little bit more right. What is perhaps, I think that the part that maybe you're alluding to is this willingness to engage in a dialogue, um, this willingness to share ideas, um, even when they know they're gonna get shot down, for example. Yeah. So I'm gonna, <laughs> let me approach this from kind of the, the psychoanalytic frame that I think somebody like Mark Marin uses. And, and just to, Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> you may have to. We both may end up weeping by the end of this. Um, and you mentioned sort of how you got into comedy and you had this, you had this, you know, when you were growing up or at least in high school, you had kind of a, an outsider's role. I don't know, maybe I'm overstating the case. When I listen to Mark Maron talk to a lot of comics, it seems to me that what's happening is, or what he's at least expecting them to say is that their their act is them working something out on stage like there's some unresolved tension or yeah. issue in their life that is manifesting in their performance in their sort of their stage presence but in their content and in their need to kind of have this dialogue as you mentioned with their audience is that is that overstating the case? Like, does that speak at all to to your engagement with the art form or, or what yeah. you see in others doing? No, no, I, I think very much. I think that you know, while you were saying that, and you had mentioned Andrew Dice Clay before, I remember listening to him interview, again interviewed by Mark Marin, and the thing that kind of struck me and almost upset me about it was he didn't seem to have any of that experience in the early part of his career there was no he just kind of came out and he knew how to do voices and he would do a jerry lewis impression and he just kind of seemed to be able to get the crowd to laugh and and that was very off-putting to me when i heard that story and look i mean i guess it's reflected in, in in the comedy that he was doing but 
most comics, I think, are very much working stuff out on stage. I mean, Mark Maron is probably at the at the uh, you know the the extreme end of that because he literally knows like this is what I'm going to do, and the audience knows he's going to work stuff out. But yeah, I think that's very much what a lot of comics are doing. So you you mentioned before you sort of returned to comedy, right? So you you were a comic, started law school, and then it it sounds like there was a a period of time at least where comedy had kind of, you had stepped away from it or it wasn't as big a a part of your life, but that you came back to it in some sense. So what what happened there? (laughs) So what happened was I was probably my first or second year of uh, law school and uh, I decided I was back in town because I, I went to uh, the first two years I did at the University of Western Ontario. So I was in London, Ontario. It's a two hour drive away from Toronto. I had I had made the very, very smart choice of getting married just before I went away to law school, which meant my wife was in Toronto and I was um, in London, Ontario. So I decided I would do a show sometime after getting into law school. And what happened was I, I had an act that you know was probably about five minutes and I had more than five minutes of material at that time and it was material that I knew would generally land pretty well certainly in Toronto it would land very well with the uh, with that audience you, you always had to be careful when you started moving out of where you lived because you, your reference points might not be the same for every crowd but very safe set that I was comfortable was going to do well and I get introduced by um, another comic uh, who you know I'd known for many years at the time and I believe it was at the Laugh Resort, I have a distinct memory, because I remember he said, your next, uh, I'm going to bring up your next guest, It's his name is Peter Hannon, he's a lawyer, and then I got up there, and the act fell completely flat, like nothing was landing, and nothing I was doing was about being a lawyer, it wasn't what my act was at the time. Um, and I was not expecting that, nor did I ask for that introduction, but the audience kind of was not having anything that came out of my mouth. And I think it would have been different if it was one of those funniest, you know, person with a day job kind of competitions where everybody knows, oh, you have a job. But I don't think stand-up comics are supposed to represent people who have jobs in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, if, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a banker or this or that, I don't think anyone wants to hear about you unless you've kind of had some sort of massive you know, fallout from where, what you're doing. So that kind of scared me away. I would say for a number of years, I was just like, okay, I don't know how to do this because I am a lawyer. It is what I do. And do I do jokes about law? Well, now I'm just doing a bunch of hack jokes about how, you know, all the, the negative stereotypes of, of lawyers. And I don't want to feed into that. I was also deathly afraid of offending any potential client. And this was before YouTube and mm. Before people would pull cell phones out and and record you, I mean that that became a whole other thing later that that caused me to be nervous about it. But yeah, so I stayed away from from it for a little while because it was I was it was not an identity crisis. I would say that I think like many young lawyers, I had that uh, imposter syndrome. You know, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm, is anybody buying this? Is anybody buying the act? Um, but then it became about well, okay. If I'm not that guy who could tell those jokes, and the jokes were scatological and, and um, you know, there were some through lines, but they were kind of on the, the peculiar side and, and, and things that I could never do in the office. And Hopefully the scatological stuff is, doesn't get done in the office. Good. No, well, Good in, move. <laughs> in fact, what, what happened is I ended up doing stand-up, <laughs> I ended up doing stand-up at an office event because they said, we're doing a talent show. Can you please do some comedy? And I 
had to desperately go through my act to try and figure out what can I come up with like five clean minutes, just clean office appropriate minutes. And this was shortly after uh, the law school event. Um, so probably like a couple of years later. And what I could come up with was such a peculiar story that that became uh, an albatross that followed me through the firm. And so my most recent stand-up set, in fact, which was uh, for, for me a return to doing kind of pure stand-up, was talking about that event and how this joke that I told uh, became kind of a calling card, a negative calling card that people would say, ah, oh, you're the guy who did that, you know, the skin baby joke, because it was the skin baby. We get the skin baby joke, or is that best left for like the director's cut here? The 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 skin baby it's it's a long joke. Um the 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 gist of it was though, you can maybe maybe this will get edited out. Um, but the gist of it was that uh I got a really bad sunburn one day and so um my skin started to peel and you know I started becoming obsessed with it and I would just like I would just like be picking at it and every night before I went to bed I would just like kind of pick and just kind of drop it by the side of the bed and you know at some point I'm pulling off maybe you know like a, a foot foot and a half of skin it's like my body was making cold cuts and so I'm like laying it down by the, the side of the bed and you know eventually I had this little pile of dead skin by my bed and I guess I was thinking about it so much that one night I had this dream that I, I woke up and there was this little translucent na naked baby boy and he said, hi, I'm Pepe, I'm your baby, you made me. And then the story goes on and it ends with me pushing uh, Pepe, uh, the, 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 the translucent skin baby, down a uh, slide and as he's jiggling all the way down, he hits the, the bottom and he bursts into a thousand pieces. And then hundreds of children come out of the woods led by Bill Cosby and they with spoons and they start eating the baby. And Bill Cosby says, your son tastes really good. And then the punchline is, uh, and I'm just saying, I don't think I'd be a good father. <laughs> so th this joke, which again, would do very well in a, in a comedy club at the time, I'm doing it in a boardroom in the middle of the day with the lights on, with the managing partner standing like six feet away from me everybody's got their arms crossed because they have nowhere to sit. They don't have drinks. They don't have food. And it was, and I powered through it because I, I, you know, I, I knew to power through it, but that thing, that gag stuck to me for years. Right. Well, and, and the joy of this is that now it will linger longer. <laughs> well, now I'm proud of Pepe because I've, I've been able to kind of come to terms. You have to love your family and, and he's a part of me, literally. Um, but yeah, so that, that, I don't know if that answered your question or if I just, you know, added another 20 minutes of unnecessary talking. No, that was perfect. I like it. And so, so to be clear, you continue to do stand-up, you know, maybe setting aside COVID, but you, you continue to do stand-up. And so like, what's your process? I mean, are you constantly sort of writing stuff down? Are you constantly planning new bits or new sets or, or how does that work for you? Well, actually what, what, to, to clarify what, what I did is, is for a while I stopped doing the pure proper standup and I just continued to write comedy and whether it was for work events or whether I was writing something or very often for other people who were, who were close to me who had to, somebody would say, I have to host an event. Can you help me write? You know, and I, and so then I would end up writing, um, you know, I, I wrote, certainly wrote a lot for my sister. I, you know, I, there would be 10, 20 minute 
minute uh, speeches that I would like be completely working through. And so it, it then eventually after a number of years, I really, when I started feeling comfortable again, and I think it was uh, the point at which I was able to kind of marry up like, okay, there's stuff that you can do and stuff that you can't do um, while maintaining the credibility of, of who you are and professionally what you're doing. So um, at any rate, that's, that's a long detour just to answer, but, but in terms of the process, so the, the funny part was I never stopped working a, a, a gag or a joke in my mind. And there are years where I was not performing at all. And I would come home and, and say to my wife, who's, you know, the, the kind of consummate critic, like she's able to, if she doesn't like a joke, I can count on one finger the number of times I did a joke that she would not approve of. And that includes all the scatological ones that I will never say ever again. So the process though, will, it used to be more about focusing on something just funny hit me and I couldn't quite get it out of my head. And so I would just come keep trying to work the joke, work the joke, work the joke. And it's not like I was trying to slip them into conversations and pretend that it was a, it was a spontaneous comment. I would literally be working the joke for nobody and no purpose. What happened though, is as I started moving kind of throughout, throughout the years, and came back to really kind of getting up and doing it again on my feet um, and being willing to do it in front of an audience and, you know, with that microphone in my hand, the process changed. And the process changed in that I started thinking, what is it that I'm trying to convey? What is the point that I'm trying to convey? And that's where I build the act of. And so that last set that I did where I talked about Pepe, what I really wanted to, to, to convey was the awkwardness that I felt early in my career conversationally with people, the fact that I couldn't do small talk very well. Like I, I could, I could make people laugh around a table, but if, if we're just, you know, going up and down an elevator, uh, I, I was not very good at the, you know, what's the weather or, you know, bad weather kind of conversation. And that was because inherently I was waiting for them to call me out, I guess, as, as being a, you know, a fraud. And so the set then came out of that with me going, okay, there was this, this period of time when I didn't know how to communicate or I felt very kind of self-conscious about it. And then I ended up having to wear that for years with the, you know, when I actually did stick my neck out. And so I'm going to talk about how I learned. And in fact, one of the jokes in the set is, you know, I, I now know how to talk to people like a normal person. And uh, there's a, you know, a joke that I do about having a conversation about sports because I'm not a sports guy and I didn't know how to kind of fake it. So that then became kind of the driving force behind that set. I've got to do another set coming up next month. And so rather than repeat that, I'm trying to think and I've been kind of figuring out what is this one going to be about? Is this and, and so it's not simply going to be a series of jokes, but rather I want to kind of make a point that generally speaking is going to be autobiographical just because the one thing is the one thing that I learned saves you from falling into cheap you know, again, hacky kind of jokes is, and I know it's, it's very funny because I'm still stuck on that concept. If, if I hear a joke, even if my like 13 year old tells me a joke and my wife will do it too, we'll call them out if we think it's a lame joke um, or, or try and correct it and then kind of workshop it with them. But, um, but yeah, so now I'm trying to figure out for the, for the next set, you know, what is it that I'm, I'm going to try and convey? And it needs to be personal because if it isn't, then I don't know, then I worry, I fall into the, um, you know, lawyers do this and, you know, that kind of, that kind of gag, which I'm, I'm just not ever going to do. Right. 
And so you're a litigator. I mean, you sort of have to appear in court and in front of other you know, tribunals, like there's a performative aspect to what, what it is that you do as a lawyer. Do you draw on kind of techniques or, or lessons that you've learned as a standup in, no. in your practice? No, for sure. The, the thing about, so the thing about standup is I always say, you know, nothing ever happened that day. Like nothing happened today. So when a standup says, you know, I was on the subway today, no, they weren't. Or they may have been on the subway, but the thing they're about to tell you happened today didn't happen today. It's a story. So it's all a lie. This, it's I'm, it's all horrifying. a lie. Whole, all our lives <laughs> on stage are a lie. But you have this kind of, you know, these little chunks of of an act that you're you're going to do, and depending on what's happening with an audience, you may end up moving in a different direction. Sometimes you have something that's pretty tightly scripted, and sometimes you have something that you know gives you a little bit of room and movement. And you know, I I. This is 100% true that I think that the that the comedy work that I did more than anything else that I did before law helped me to learn how to write how to, how to write for, for legal argument because you have to be very succinct and again it might sound trite but when you're setting something up an audience starts to get very fidgety and uptight if they don't understand where you're going in the same way that a judge starts to get very annoyed bored or irritated. I guess annoyed and irritated are the same thing. Annoyed or irritated or bored. If they don't quite understand what your point is, you need to kind of cut to the chase, which means that you have a very small window to establish what the premise is. So I would liken that to the opening of a factum. Like when you, you I, I always try and approach a factum as that, that introductory section kind of needs to give the entirety of the argument in some way, shape or form and set up whatever the themes are that you're going to try and carry through the entire argument. And so it's very much the same as, as kind of writing that joke where, you know, yeah, the punchline has to be a surprise, has to be a twist, has to be something, but the audience has to be with you and, and you have to be painting a picture in such a clear way with words that they are in the right position to be surprised by whatever it is that the punchline is going to be. And I definitely think that working uh, in front of a, 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 a drunk crowd that can turn on you and heckle is a hundred percent like working in front of a judge um, because again judges if they don't like what's going on or if they're getting annoyed or whatever they let you know and you have to be nimble and you have to understand that you're not going to at that point ignore what they're saying and simply continue reading a script and then the other thing is is the conversational aspect this, this idea that i think a judge will react and respond anyone that you speak to will respond most most um genuinely and most uh uh, be most engaged with what you're saying if you are able to communicate it if you're able to make it a conversation and so even with judges i've always taken with all the the your honors and the you know the formalities of of you know one takes deal, deal with some housekeeping matters and going through the 35 briefs of evidence that i filed um the night before that's not true i would always file it properly at the proper time um but you know even in in those cases it's it's a matter of understanding you know there's a human being who's coming to work that's their desk so you need to just kind of talk to them and not kind of you know you're at a podium but you don't want to have them feel like you're a person standing at a podium lecturing them and so it's the same very much with comedy that you need to connect with the audience you need to they need to feel like you are talking to them otherwise it's not that interesting nice i like that i like the factum as joke kind of framing there I feel like there's a journal article in that that we can, we can pull off. <laughs> and I, again, it's not, I, it might sound like a, I don't know if it sounds like a forced metaphor or not, but it's a hundred percent true. Like I, I come back to it so often that I go like, 
if this paragraph is, is meandering or if it doesn't kind of get to the point quickly or if I haven't painted the picture so that that second paragraph of the factum starts to make sense, then I, I just keep going back and reworking and reworking and reworking it, much like I do for jokes uh, that I have nobody to tell. Nice. Um, okay, so last question. So I'm, and I don't know if you have a view on this, because I, I, I recognize that there's a distinction between sort of stand up and improv. But one of the kind of perennial sort of bits of advice that sort of floats around kind of the legal community, it's kind of like, you know how they every once in a while there's somebody who's like oh lawyers should learn to code and i'm always like lawyers should definitely not learn to code <laughs> um but the other thing is like oh lawyers should take like an improv class and i'm like definitely don't take an improv class what do you have a view on whether lawyers should take an improv class so uh, the the short answer is actually uh yes um and i've for you know um, one of the firms that i had worked at for many years i actually did bring in couple of people from Second City to do an improv class and it was specifically geared towards lawyers and I was very kind of clear with them you know don't don't be too kind of bright and fluffy like you know these these are people who are going to walk in the room and probably already be some might, might be getting excited but a lot of them are going to be really annoyed because they could be doing work right now or at home or out drinking um, they're a cynical skeptical bunch yes they, they can be but it what was really i thought valuable was understanding the like it's 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 learning to listen actively while being ready to exchange uh in the conversation while being ready to to kind of you're, you're lobbing stuff back and forth between partners and you're trying to build something but when you've got a judge again coming at you for something that they don't understand or they don't agree with it's the ability to listen actively to what they're trying to say and what they're, they're they're trying to get at while not losing your place and while understanding, okay, I've got to now go to this section in order to, you know, of what I wanted to talk about in order to uh, respond. So I've seen it work. I am sure that there are a lot of examples that, that people can throw out of, of bad experiences they have because, you know, any, any kind of course you take, some people have good experiences and will have bad, but I actually do think it, it helps certainly for litigation. If you if you got to talk for a living, then learning how to talk and listen probably not a bad thing. Right, amazing. So you mentioned new material. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm performing. Uh, so I'm performing online for because I think unfortunately the 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 Delta variant is is not cooperating uh, with the comedy world. But um, it is uh, going to be an online comedy night being held on September 29th by. Uh, an organization called Zero Productivity Automation. And so it's uh, called Law Laughs 2, because this is the second one. But the full title apparently is Law Laughs 2 Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Um, which is a throwback yeah, yeah. for anyone old enough to know. <laughs> you know, you know, and if you don't, don't ask. Yeah, it's just not going to be funny if you have to. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Thanks, Peter. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk through this. This was great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bob got a microphone. Dot com.